Are you looking for your next podcast binge to lose yourself in? Let me introduce you to a story that begins with sweet romance but quickly turns into betrayal and the far-reaching consequences of one man's deceit. It's an account told by the women whose lives were forever changed by it. You probably think the stories about you is a podcast hosted by Brittany Art. And it's not just another podcast. It's an exploration of self-discovery, growth, resilience, and healing. And it's all told in a unique format. And this is why I'm so excited about this one. This is Brittany's story, but she doesn't just host it like a podcast in the traditional sense. Through immersive soundscapes and the voices of the women affected by these events, this podcast creates such a unique experience experience that's going to make your headphones glow in the dark. I can't wait to get started and I hope you'll join me. Listen and follow. You'll probably think the stories about you wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, so I, I did find myself trying my hardest to really resist the pull to walk away and from the difficult conversations, from the very entangled and complicated dynamics that inevitably accompany such dynamics and really all of it, but um, I couldn't. And I know I also wouldn't because like you and so many people, at the end of the day, all of this is really too important to me. That was Dr. Anastasia Kim on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are three clinical psychologists committed to cutting-edge, integrative, and evidence-based strategies for living well. On this podcast, we bring you ideas from psychology that can help you flourish in your work, parenting, relationships, and health. I am Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. And from coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. We hope this podcast offers you ideas for how to live a full and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Hi there. So today we're bringing you an interview with Dr. Anastasia Kim and Dr. Alicia Del Prado, who have written a book called It's Time to Talk and Listen, How to Have Constructive Conversations About Race, Class, Sexuality, Ability, and Gender in a Polarized World. And I think this book came at a time when we are in a polarized world and where we're in a world where there's a lot of talk about things like race and gender happening around us. And so often these conversations can just get into a really messy, muddy, hurtful, scary, angry place. And I think for me, I see this in playing out of my life in a lot of ways, even within my professional circles, it can happen certainly in my personal life with friends and family. I think we, the reason why it's so hard is because we feel so vulnerable around it. I think we're a little bit like sea urchins where we have this kind of mushy vulnerability around the topics of race and class and sexuality and gender. And then we get really prickly to protect it. And part of that has to do with this history that is embedded in our, in our ancestry and, and what we've, you know, what was happened in the past and that is currently continues to happen microaggressions that continue to happen and, um, you know, open up wounds and, and not allow wounds to heal as well as this real defensiveness to 
protect what we uncertainty around what we don't we don't know what to say or how to say things, and it can cause such um, like such standoffs and shutdowns between people. It really can, and I was just thinking of an example from my personal life where one time my family had a conversation that was related to race and racism, and it started out very reasonable and fine, and then we and you know just snowballed, and we ended up like basically all yelling and people were getting really overly emotional. And some people just said, I can't talk about this anymore. And they left the room. And I thought, wow, how did this come to this? And I think that's just something that happens so often. We just can't even, we can't even stay with it. And it's so important to be talking about these issues and listening. So this episode will give us some, some help around that. (laughs) Some much needed help. Okay. Some very clear pointers about better clear pointers, which I think we could all use. So so listen up and then send it to some um, choice family members. That you That's think. right. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Anastasia Kim is a tenured associate professor at the Wright Institute in Berkeley, California, where she also has a private practice specializing in treating adolescents and young adults. She is a national Ronald McNair scholar and the recipient of numerous awards, including the American Psychological Association Minority Fellowship, Okura Mental Health Fellowship, and APAGS Guardian of Psychology Award. Dr. Kim has served as president of the Alameda County Psychological Association, chair of the California Psychological Association Immigration Task Force, and the diversity delegate of the CPA. She has presented and published in the areas of cultural competence and training, immigration, women of color in academia, and more. Dr. Alicia Del Prado is a tenured associate professor at the Wright Institute in Berkeley, California, and a licensed counseling psychologist with a private practice in Danville, California. She has published numerous journal articles and chapters on cross-cultural psychology, personality, acculturation, and ethnic identity, including the first enculturation scale for Filipino Americans, and provides consultation and trainings on multicultural issues to companies and colleges. Dr. Del Prado is a chair and co-founder of the Asian American Psychology Association's Division of on Asian Americans with Multiple Heritages, and was awarded both the Alameda County Psychological Association's Janet Hurwich Award and the AAPA Okura Community Leadership Award. And recently, they have co-authored a book that is just coming out that's called It's Time to Talk and Listen, How to Have Constructive Conversations About Race, Class, Sexuality, Ability, and Gender in a Polarized World. And I read it to prepare for this interview, and it's really a very practical kind of hands-on guide with a lot of helpful tips. And it also digs a little bit deeper into exploring one's own sort of values and goals and just helping people be a little clear around their own emotions related to these topics. And so it's a wonderful book. Um, Congratulations to both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Debbie. Um, We're going to dive right in here. I wanted to start by saying um, in the introduction, you give kind of the backstory of how the book came about. And I really thought this story was important. Um, Anastasia, I think it was you who, who wrote that you were feeling pretty depleted because you were doing a lot of work in the area of diversity and inclusivity. And you know, your, your ideas sort of came to you because you were in this just place of feeling a little discouraged about the whole thing. And I have to say, I sometimes find this really 
just depleting and draining and hard when conversations or conflict arises related to gender or racism or other kind of diversity issues. It can just be so hard. And so for me, it was really nice to hear that you're both experts on this and feel this way too sometimes. So I was wondering to start us off, if you could just tell us a little bit about your personal experience about this and why this is an important area to you both. Yeah, De- Debbie, thank you so much, first of all, having us on. Alicia and I are super excited to have this conversation with you in the next hour and to be able to address your listeners and subscribers. And you're right. Um, we are both experts in the field and um, we are regularly challenged um, because these topics are very challenging and they are also super important. So the model, um, as you mentioned, from which the book is based was a bit of an intervention tool of sorts that I developed for myself. This was approximately 10 years ago. And as you mentioned, this was during a time at work when I found myself in the throes of heated conversations about multicultural issues here at the Wright Institute regarding training and education. And this involved faculty, students, and staff. And Although these conversations are not new to me, um, but for a number of reasons, I definitely found myself in a very challenging place um, and time staying in it and also trying to remain hopeful. I will add that I did have a newborn at the time, my second child and at home. So it definitely didn't help that I was exhausted 24-7 and my emotional stamina was um, very limited at work and certainly for these conversations. Um, so I, I did find myself trying my hardest to really resist the pull to walk away and from the difficult conversations, from the very entangled and complicated dynamics that inevitably accompany such dynamics, and really all of it. But um, I couldn't. And I know I also wouldn't because like you and so many people, at the end of the day, all of this is really too important to me. Um, It's very personal. It was really the reason that I became a psychologist to better understand and do my own part in helping individuals and communities to heal, including myself. And growing up in an immigrant family in poor communities with violence and sometimes gang activities, I felt like I really experienced and saw firsthand the impacts of social inequities, really the breeding grounds for psychological distress and, and despair. So why these conversations are so important is really quite simple. I sincerely believe that our collective survival depends on them. Um, I am mindful that that sounds a bit dramatic, but we only need to turn on the news to know that we're living in a midst of tremendous uncertainty of chaos, anger, and angst, and there's really palpable unrest and unease in our world. I personally believe that fear is being manufactured and sometimes even weaponized by all sides every day through quite vitriolic political rhetoric and spreading like wildfire at incredible speeds uh, through portals like social media. And of course, the irony is that we live in an era of social, of science and technology, which in theory is supposed to bring us closer together. And yet it seems to many that we are more divided and disconnected than ever before. Any attempts at such conversations, we all know, often result in some version of us versus them and unhelpful type of tribal mentality, if you will. Yet at the end of the day, these topics are super important and they must be addressed as they are really critical to our collective functioning and survival. But they also seem 
quite impossible to talk about, at least constructively, productively, and with certainly with some sense of mutual respect. And that's uh, whether that's across the aisle in Congress at work meetings or even at the dinner table at my house. And so it's precisely because of our own sense of urgency. And we really hope that this model might help some folks. Um, and that's why we decided to um, write this book. So it has both some personal, but also bigger picture, more global ramifications. How, how about you, Alicia? Well, similar to Anastasia, cross-cultural communication has been at the center of my life from the beginning. Um, I am a multiracial person with Filipina and Italian ancestry and born and raised in San Francisco. So I also really have a large culturally diverse uh, family and extended family, many of whom are Filipino, Italian, Salvadorian, Irish, Puerto Rican, and African American. Um, So perhaps because of this rich family fabric, I've always had an innate desire to foster communication and bridge connections between different communities, even on difficult topics like racism, sexism, and classism. These personal and family experiences influenced my decision to become a counseling psychologist who does focus on the importance of culture. So when I met Anastasia at the Wright Institute and learned about her model, I was overjoyed and enthused to be a part of the journey to talk about culture from this um, framework. And I believe that using the model and the steps really helps build agency within us in times when we feel like we don't have much control, Um, but we do have the power to talk and to listen to one another which is why I'm involved in this important project. Yeah, to me, I think there's something where that conversation can do that maybe doesn't happen in other ways. And so, yeah, I agree with you. It's just to have a model to help guide that is so important. One of the things that you write is that we have a really a continuum of how we might respond. On one end, we have silence where you just say nothing. And I think we... I'll probably do this sometimes. On the other end is conflict. And this is kind of where it just gets to the point that there's arguing or it gets really, really heated and nobody's getting anywhere. And there's a whole big range in between. And I think what your book is really aiming for is constructive conversation, which, you know, it's not silence. It's saying something, but it's also not this kind of angry tone to it. Um, But let's start, before we move into that, let's start by talking about the other end, the silence end, because I think that there are times when we care deeply about something, but we just decide, you know what, I'm not going to say anything because it's it's too much. Um, Can you speak a little bit, Anastasia, about why these kinds of conversations can be so hard and why sometimes we might choose to say nothing? Yeah. So this is a great question and something that Alicia and I definitely mold over um, in reflecting on both our personal and professional experiences. And these conversations are absolutely hard. And I believe they're hard for a number of reasons. Um, first, I think they're hard because we've in many ways been socialized to believe that they're taboo. I mean, who goes to a dinner party or coffee with a friend and decides to 
talk casually about the plight of racism, classism, heterosexism in contemporary American society. Um, so it, it's taboo. And because of this socialization, um, we then have very limited experiencing experiences in having such conversations. It's simply something that's not encouraged, so we don't have the opportunities to practice, which in turn means that our repertoire of skills in having these conversations, particularly in mixed cross-cultural company, is super limited and certainly underdeveloped. And finally, these conversations are hard, I believe, because they often involve big and intense emotions, which for majority of us, even for psychotherapists, are not always easy to manage. So when you combine social taboo, limited skills, and big and intense emotions, you often get a high-stakes situation, which leads to a higher likelihood that it can get messy. And who wants to deal with messy? Not me, um, not many of us. So then we are more likely to not speak in inaction roles. So I suspect that for majority of us, this is more common than we'd like to admit, since silence is certainly is not the and silence is certainly not the answer, but it is very understandable. Um, as I was thinking about this talk this morning, Debbie, I was reminded of an example that I often give to students in class um, regarding this topic. And um, that example is when a young child often stares and points at somebody who might let's say, be a wheelchair user. The child might turn to their parent and say, possibly loudly in public, what's wrong with that man's leg? Um, the common response in most cases is a parent shushing the child quickly and maybe saying something like, stop it, it's not polite to uh, point and stare, come on, let's go. Um, of course, the problem with a situation like this, that it stops natural curiosity dead in its tracks. And unless the parent in this case has some familiarity with disability issues, it also means that there's no opportunity for that child to develop vocabulary and understanding about the experiences of others who might be differently able than they are. And over time, that child learns to stay quiet, not ask questions in silence, um, and unknowing becomes the norm which re really becomes the perfect breeding grounds for ableism. And this is a dynamic that's all too common across most socially taboo topics. And beyond that, other reasons why we might decide to remain silent or do nothing include that we have a fear of saying the wrong thing, putting our foot in our mouth and not wanting to possibly meddle in other people's business um, maybe believing that if we do say something, it might make the situation worse we might also decide to be silent because we have been maybe possibly deeply injured and who wants to risk getting hurt again. So in all these scenarios, the common thread is really fear and anxiety, fear of doing, fear of being wrong, of being hurt, of retaliation, or even alienation. And then we, for all intents and purposes, become the deer in headlights, paralyzed, not knowing what to say, what to, what to do, and then silence becomes the default. And I'm sure most people have been there at one point or another. So we want to make sure that our readers know that they're not alone. This is familiar turf for many of us. And as such, the book and the model um, is really aimed to both affirm the normalcy of silence and also to encourage people to unmute by giving them tools for how to do so with some level of integrity and hopefully with success. Yeah, I, I appreciate that answer. And I think it's important. I think sometimes the burden really does fall to the, the person that's in the, you know, the marginalized group and that to some degree, it's exhausting and you have to take care of yourself. And so even though these conversations are so important, it is valid sometimes to choose 
you know what, in this particular case, I'm going to take care of myself maybe by, you know, choosing silence for now. And I think that's okay. And that's maybe a place where where allies, for instance, if it's racism, you know, I'm white, and maybe I might be less depleted and be able to share some of that work. But absolutely, that the conversations are important and can be draining. Yeah. yeah. And I appreciate you pointing that out, because I think in order to do this work, it really is a marathon and not a sprint. So um, the idea and the practice of self care becomes super important. And it might be the case that we are very intentional and deliberate sometimes about sitting out intentionally um, on a conversation because we need to maintain some level of of stamina um, longer in the game. And and that's okay, too. That's um, okay, too. Now, one of the things that we clarify in the book is that while the book is about how to lean in and how to engage in constructive conversations, it really is a decision that you're going to make that this is the time, this is when I have the energy to engage. And sometimes we might not. Um, Another thing I think that's important to highlight is that, you know, shame can silence us. And we also need to acknowledge that keeping the peace can be adaptive. Avoiding conflict can preserve relationships and reserve energy. Unfortunately, though, sometimes the silence comes at a great cost. And so there's other times where you might dig deep and decide, no, I am scared yet I am going to initiate this important conversation, whether it's to speak up for myself or for somebody else. And along those lines, something that's really an important point, and you acknowledge this in your book in the part about sort of setting the stage for a constructive conversation, and, and you talk about you know how we express ourselves. And the point that you raise is that often marginalized people in marginalized groups will feel like they are being told how and when it's okay to speak. And so here you are kind of offering pointers to have constructive conversations and yet telling people how and when to talk can be a form of sort of power and, and really a microaggression. And, you know, as a woman, I have a personal example that, that I kind of wanted to share that sometimes I've noticed when we have hard conversations about gender and sexism, men will, women will get angry, kind of rightfully so, about some of the the systems of power. And I, men can respond with a bit of a tone of like, hey, ladies, you know, calm down. Why are you so angry? Be civil. Let's all get along. I mean, not quite that <laughs> explicitly. Mm-hmm. Um but that's the tone. And to, to me, frankly, as a woman, it kind of shuts the conversation down. And it really makes me feel even more angry. Um, I know that's not the intention of your book. You, and you say that you even kind of thought about leaving that part out because you didn't want it to be interpreted as like tone policing. So what, um, Anastasia, can you tell us what were your thoughts around that? And, and what was your intention in writing the book? Yeah, thank you for this question, Debbie. Alicia and I definitely sat with this and went back and forth and <laughs> had very lively conversations. <laughs> <laughs> definitely had lively conversations between us, um, you know, and pulled in other people. And this is really complex. So um, it's certainly an area we really struggled to strike the right balance, and it wasn't easy. To be clear, um, there are many, many situations in which our emotions including 
things like anger are completely, completely justified, um, including in the example you just shared, which frankly sounds definitely like a form of tone policing. Um, so tone policing is actually a powerful tool of oppression used to marginalize and silence uh, the voices of those who are subjugated. So women, people of color, uh, those who are poor, those with disability. So in your case, being told by men or even other women, um, aka through the lens of internalized sexism, to be told to be quiet, civil, don't get angry. Angry literally diminishes your experience as a woman. It, it takes you down a notch. So um, one of the examples that we use in the book is the widespread cultural practice of uh, policing and silencing Black women's voices, wherein Black women are portrayed in our culture as being loud and aggressive, irregardless of how loud or aggressive they actually are. And this is, again, a powerful tool of oppression that's been used and continues to be used, quite frankly, to dismiss and negate and silence the literal and metaphorical voice of Black women, um, such that anything that they say is already challenged and um, delegitimized before they even speak a single word. And this is certainly not an easy topic to discuss, but Honestly, in order to have a constructive and hopefully healing conversations, we have to be willing to unpack some of our collective and historical baggage to speak truth, no matter how uncomfortable or even ugly. So we really want to challenge our readers to do just that. Um, and beyond tone policing, when we talk about tone in general, we want to be very clear we are not in any way challenging the validity or justification for anyone's anger or any other emotion for that matter. Instead, we are hoping to point out that when strong emotions unilaterally take over the driver's seat, um, there's a greater chance that a constructive conversation just might not happen. Um, if you actually think about it, this is true in all sorts of situations and not only um, in those that involve topics of culture and diversity. Um, so the point we want to make regarding tone is this. Your tone is not about the legitimacy of your rightful anger, sadness, or any other emotion for that matter. Uh, rather, it's about understanding how the quality of tone affects the likelihood of being heard. And ideally, you can express your emotion to its full capacity and also be fully heard. But the truth of the matter is this is very challenging. So we want to help our readers to increase their effectiveness in having their hurt, anger be heard, and really affirmed in the ways that they deserve and need from others. So um, we can hear and begin to understand one another. Um, and that's when healing becomes possible. But when we lead with the tone that is not mindful, not not right, but not mindful, the poor tone quality alone can put the other person on the defense. I mean, this is full armor activated just based on tone, um, which then can automatically render the other person unable, unwilling to hear, receive, and believe why you are so angry or hurt or sad. So tone is about maximizing communication effectiveness and not about muting the legitimacy of your emotions. And I think this is hard. So when emotions get really high and people get into their sort of threat, you know, threat system activation, they feel fear, they feel angry, the conversation really can go nowhere. And on the other hand, you know, I so I think what's what's the hard thing, and I'm going to ask this question, Alicia, which is I don't expect you to have perfect answers because it's so hard, but to, to give us your thoughts on how we can both have our anger, which is valid and be genuine, be real, you know, not be listening to the tone police um, and still be effective. How do, how do we do that? 
you know, it's funny because even before I became a psychologist, I think someone, it might have been my mom, I'll, I'll give her credit just, just in case, um, said, you know, feelings are just feelings. They're neither right or wrong. And I remember rolling my eyes and being like, oh, what? You know? And yet now that I'm a mother and have two sons, I kind of find myself telling them some similar advice. You know, they are are angry often, get frustrated often, and I'll tell them it's okay. It's okay to be mad, um, but it's what you do with your anger that matters. I really encourage them to verbalize the feeling they have, to name it aloud, and, you know, they're five and seven right now, so it's building that emotional vocabulary so that the anger that they feel is validated but without the anger being in the driver's seat. So while I'm giving you an example that involves my kiddos, um, I think this has strong applications to what your question is. Because in order to be effective, our anger can be in the passenger seat, but cannot drive the car. I want to have our readers invite an exploration of the anger, to be curious about what's the purpose of the anger, so that we can acknowledge that often anger is really adaptive, and to kind of explore what's helpful about the anger, and also how are we expressing our anger? Are we turning it inward in destructive ways? Are we externalizing it and putting it outward on others? So we're able to really examine what's helpful about this anger and what's not so helpful. And I think by doing that, we really aren't trying to silence the anger, but let it be because there's something about it that usually is needed. Um, that being said, um, again, if the anger's in the driver's seat, often it's not going to be conducive to having constructive conversations, period, and especially about constructive conversations about culture. So I think one, one tidbit, which you know some of us are, might be doing already but wouldn't want to underestimate the importance of full-fledged venting to a trusted friend about your anger in ways that are unedited so that you can just let that out. By doing that, I think that's essential to being able to lean in to more conversations with a clearer head and just more grounded feelings, whether that's through your anger or other feelings that are important. Maybe now we can move right into talking a bit about the model you've developed, which has some really helpful ways of doing this effectively. Uh, your model is called the Kim Constructive Conversations Model, and it's really, again, a step-by-step -step guide. Um, you bring in some of your work in this area of diversity and inclusivity, and also some principles from your clinical work, some mindfulness and cognitive behavioral therapy elements. Um, before we kind of go through some of the steps in the model, I, I just want to point out, you really emphasize a couple things. You emphasize healing, just the healing aspects of this process. And you also encourage people to do some really honest self-reflection. I think that's really important. Um, can you talk to us about both of those? Anastasia, maybe start us off by talking about the healing part. Yeah. So um, healing is definitely emphasized in this model because these conversations tap directly into our 
historical baggage, if you will. Um, this includes the legacy of our unresolved and ongoing traumas. I mean, we're talking about things like genocide, slavery, internment, oppression of women, queer communities, all of which not only has caused deep psychological and spiritual wounding, but is really well taking the lives of millions of people for no other reason than their identity, often their immutable identity. So being a woman, being queer, Native American, Black, person of color, poor, someone with a disability, if you worship the wrong God, um, were and in many ways are still not merely a risk for for legal, emotional, or spiritual injury, but really a risk to one's literal physical safety. And it's not just the persons who are the targets of oppression that are impacted, but, but also those who gain the unearned advantages um, from the same oppression. It's happened to all of us. Um, so I like to think about this often in the context of family therapy, which I happen to be teaching at the moment in the current spring term. And if we do that, we can acknowledge that there are innumerable skeletons in our closet, countless ghosts, if you will, in our nursery. And so constructive conversations about race and class, sexuality, ability, gender in our American family, our global family, is in many ways about enacting family therapy. Um, the family therapy framework. So you can try to simply skim the surface, but there are some deep, deep wounds that will and must be addressed at some point. So healing is important because these conversations at the end of the day are about our past and evolving history. It's um, about healing old traumas that continue to haunt and impact our current relationships with one another, and as well as injuries and assaults that are still ongoing. It's about um, healing ourselves and the wounds that lay deep within, which have the chance, frankly, to power powerfully in relationship connection with our um, literal and metaphorical sisters and brothers. So regardless, because regardless of where one is on the power spectrum that you land, many of us are carrying around a lot of pain. Well, and it goes back to that idea of why you're doing this, you know, in hopes that it will be helpful in the long run. The Yes. And and what about self-reflection, Alicia? Why is that an important part of your model? We really see it as uh, pivotal because it's important to know and be comfortable with your strengths. What are your assets already going into this process? Also, it's important to know what are your triggers? What activates you? What kind of gets you going? Um, when discussing difficult topics, even before the conversation begins, we really need to know ourselves to be able to engage mindfully and authentically. Otherwise, a conversation can quickly become an argument or just stop, a stop sign that we're going to be not even be able to go forward. And so in the book, we weave in sections that we've called Your Turn in which we ask the reader to stop and self-reflect so that they can put flashlights on their blind spots. And questions we might ask include, how do I come across to people when I speak to them? We also ask, what important things do others not know about me? And so literally, while you're reading, you'll also be pausing to maybe journal about this, or discuss this with an accountability buddy. We ask people to find a buddy that you can either read the book with 
to help further promote self-reflection. Or if that buddy doesn't want to read the book, that's fine. But someone you can kind of go to and reflect and talk with about the ideas and feelings that are coming up. Um, We also ask folks to do exercises. And one of my favorites is that it's asking you to use your modern technology, possibly your smartphone or your laptop, (laughs) to take a video of yourself. And in this exercise, we ask that someone record, videotape themselves for one to two minutes, pretending to talk to someone about one of their goals for a constructive conversation, and then play it back. And with this aspect of self-reflection, you might be asking yourself, how do I sound? I know the first time that I had to record myself, I was horrified about the sound and pitch of my voice. And once I got through that, though, I was like, oh, okay, this is helpful. I know more about myself now than I did before I listened to myself on tape. Um, Another question you might ask after doing this exercise is, what are your go-to words? How do you fill the silence? What words do you tend to repeat? What facial expressions do you have? What's your eye contact like? All of these pieces of self-reflection are really relevant before and during having a conversation. And you're really trying to be as honest with yourself as possible to put up that mirror. In order to effectively communicate with others, you need to know how you come across and the impact you have, whether it's intentional or not. Yeah, so taking an honest look at it, I think, can be challenging work and it it can really enhance the process. So let's move into a little glimpse into some of the stages here. And we just won't have enough time to go through it very thoroughly. So I'd really encourage listeners to get the book and take a look at it for a lot more detail and information to look at those exercises that you offer. But to give kind of an overview, it's it's an eight-step process, and it kind of walks through these in great detail. The first few steps are really related to setting goals for the conversation, taking a look at the internal and external barriers that, that might possibly arrive, arise, clarifying values related to the conversation and how you want to be in this conversation, and just getting a lot of clarity around that. And We won't have time to go through all of this. There's so much to discuss within each of these initial steps, but I'd really like to delve into one of the important ones that arises, I think, as an internal barrier, which is fear. Because I think it really takes sometimes every ounce of courage to have these difficult conversations and plunge in. So what advice do you have for listeners for when fear arises, when you're going to brave one of these conversations? Yeah, first and foremost, I think it's important to remember that some fear is evolutionarily adaptive and keeps us on guard and alert for real threats. However, there are other fears that are not life-threatening and just stand in the way of those constructive conversations. So fear of conflict, fear of losing control, Fear of putting your foot in your mouth, fear of looking racist, fear of being judged, fear of being rejected. I could go on and on, but tons and tons of fears that really just get in the way. And so identification of what you're most afraid of is really relevant to be able to address that fear. Could be fear of abandonment, could be fear of being vulnerable, fear of not being believed. 
I could, again, go on and on, but I'm hoping that as people are listening to the range of fears, some might be percolating to the top for you and seeing, yes, this is a core fear. And when we know what our core fears are, while it can be scary to name them aloud, by doing so, it's helpful because otherwise unnamed fears can perpetuate avoidance and stagnation which in turn preserves the status quo because we're going to avoid real dialogue about important societal issues that need our shared attention. So instead of leaning out of our fear, we really want to encourage you to lean into your fear. But again, to do so, we need to know what we're afraid of to understand that fear and not judge it, but be compassionate for our afraid selves. And then once we do that, we then can match the fear with a tool that's more powerful. And you mentioned courage. And so courage could be the tool that can kind of address or diminish the fear. And what is courage? It's a value. And so we really recommend asking each of us to decide what's your top values, Maybe it's one, maybe it's two, maybe it's a top three. But by connecting with what your values already are, it can be the helpful, powerful tool to help address the fear and not feel powerless against it, but accompanied with your values, so to speak. The next sort of step in the process is about, which is step four, is about starting the conversation or sort of setting the stage. Uh, Can you briefly, Alicia, talk to us about some of the ideas that you offer for how to really open with an effective sort of tone for starting the conversation? Definitely. We practice um, pretty much from a cognitive behavioral approach that's research and evidence-based. And part of that theory is being collaborative and transparent with what you're doing in therapy. And you can see that in this model with the openers in terms of setting the stage. So we really recommend opening up the conversation with explicit statements that frame what's to come. Remember, you might have been thinking about this conversation for quite some time before you actually address it and broach it with the person you want to communicate with, but they might have no idea that this is about to happen. And so the opener is designed to help give them a helpful heads up. Um, In the book, we use the analogy of setting your table before serving the meal. The meat of your conversation is going to be much more digestible if you open it up and prepare the person you're speaking with with a simple intro sentence of what's to come. So we kind of on a high level recommend opening with genuineness and being really kind of sincere because the person you're speaking to is going to sniff out that inauthenticity, and the conversation is going to end before it begins. So that's where those core values come in again, but you're going to verbalize those. So for example, if your top value is hope or honesty, you may start with an opener such as, I feel hopeful that we can talk openly about 
what just has happened. So you're referencing those things as you open up. Another example um, might be anchoring yourself in faith, if faith is a core value. And you might say something like, I'm going to dig deep here and go out on a limb. So you're communicating that this is something that is personal for you, and you're going to put trust into having the conversation. Setting the stage in these ways with a successful opener dramatically shifts and shapes the way the constructive conversation takes place and the way it receives. They're very brief, but they're very powerful because you're choosing to slow down and give words to your intention before you kind of get to the point or main point of your message. You're signaling to the listener, okay, we're ready, but not in a way that's kind of scaring them off. Like sometimes you might have had somebody say, uh, all right, sit down. I have some bad news coming. It's not that kind of opener. Um, But we do have some simple strategies like using I statements rather than you statements, inviting the listener to join in a collaborative exchange, and then, again, having your core values guide your word choice. Wonderful. I mean, I think anytime you have a conversation about any difficult conversation, if you're real and you're open and you're caring and you're a little vulnerable, it it really helps from getting to that place of anger that makes the conversation more real. Exactly. You're not saying this content or addressing or challenging to, quote, be mean and quote, you know, but you're saying it because you care. Exactly. And then you move into the action step, step five, which is a framework for plunging in. And it's basically why this person, my experience, and then the ask, which is sort of a request or what you want them to do. That's the process that that you recommend, the why, why this person, my experience, and the ask. Sounds simple, but it's a skill. Um, Anastasia, can you walk our listeners through what this might look like? Yeah. So this is the big step. I mean, in many ways, we force our readers to slow down when, in fact, the pull might be to plunge right in from the beginning without identifying your barriers and goals and um, values that would help to anchor this. And so um, you're right. This is much more complicated than meets the eye. And as such, we decided to break this one step into um, several components to really help the reader develop the skills. So it's broken down into the three major parts that you articulated. And these three essential ingredients really work together um, toward a common goal. And the common goal throughout all this step is to stay in genuine relationship connection. We just talked about fear and how fear is constantly looming over us, um, within us and in between um, our interactions. And so we have to be very mindful of how to stay, how to stay in relationship connection when everything may be in between the ears and your body saying, leave, go away, you know, um, don't ever talk to this person ever again. (laughs) So um, the three 
parts that you I wanted to briefly explain why this person. So this is the beginning part of the relationship connection. The constructive conversations model places a tremendous emphasis on the relationship connection as a means to having a successful conversation. Um, when we broach difficult topics, it's easy to forget or even neglect the conversation or even the possibility of new com- connections in the case of strangers between people. So if the connection is not acknowledged and nurtured from the outset, then the road ahead quickly, quickly becomes a slippery one. Um, because what you're about to share with the speak of the other person isn't necessarily, um, you know, rainbows and unicorns. So that's the first part. The me, the my experience part is the second. Um, This is hands down, of course, the most sensitive content that you'll be communicating. And as a standalone, it definitely has the potential not only to sting, but also to quite likely trigger conflict or even more serious consequences. So it can and most likely will feel um, intimidating and nerve wracking for for one to share their truth with someone who might not already see it. Um, But you are, remember, buttressing this very sensitive content with two other essential ingredients on the front and back end that will ideally soften the blow and help maximize the other person's ability to hear and receive what you say. So the final ingredient or uh, factor is the ask. Um, And the best kind of ask is one that promotes responsiveness and mutuality. And in general, we recommend that you give the other person the benefit of the doubt and opportunity for them to save face, even if they are obviously in the wrong from your perspective. And the benefit of the doubt is really important. And if you think about it, it is definitely a value for relationship connection. Um, So that's something that we want to emphasize here. We're not suggesting that you lie or dance around the truth, but rather we encourage um, the reader to accentuate that which matters most to having a successful conversation, a mutual openness, uh, willingness to share honestly, to listen deeply. And this means that we consider others in the same manner that we ourselves would want to be considered with compassion, with generosity, and um, to realize and remember that we are, after all, all fallible and imperfect. And the more that we can hold one another with grace and mercy, the greater the chances that we will heal together. So I wanted to give Debbie a, a quick example. You started us off with a example that I'm sure many of us could relate to. You mentioned that sometimes in conversations regarding gender um, where men basically respond with some versions of, you know, hey, ladies, let's all be civil. You know, why can't we get along? Why are you being so angry? And how that makes you even more angry. And so I was thinking about that um, in the context of this particular step. And I'm not sure exactly what particular um, male person you're thinking of, but I, I was thinking if it was, let's say, you know, um, a coworker, you might say, let's let's call him John. Hypothetically, you might say something to this effect: John, um, last week you said something that left me feeling really disheartened, which would be your experience, Debbie. Um, I'm sure you didn't mean any harm, which is the benefit of the doubt that you would give to John. But because I respect you as a colleague, and now this is the relationship connection, um, I wanted to check in with you. 
to let you know how your comment impacted me and also to better understand where you were coming from, coming from. And do you have a few minutes to talk? So the last part is the ask in terms of wanting to be in relationship connection with, and then these other parts offer a combination of your experience of having been disheartened to giving John the benefit of the doubt. Um, and, um, you know, hopefully a conversation can ensue from there. So, um, another example of how the three ingredients might work in the action step is with a client. And now this is very sensitive because of the power deferential. So I was imagining something, uh, possibly like this. So I might say to my client, um, I would like to check in with you about something you said a few weeks ago. I took some time to think about how I might bring it up because I very much value our working relationship. So there you see the relationship connector, the why. On several occasions, you used a rather derogatory word. I believe you may have used the N-word, for instance, which honestly caught me off guard. So that's you conveying to your client your experience. Maybe I misunderstood or misheard you. This is you giving the client the benefit of the doubt, in which case my apologies. I was hoping to better understand what you meant and where you were coming from. So that would be the ask um, of the client. I'm very mindful that this is very sensitive, but given your listeners and subscribers, I also suspect this is something that comes up time and again, maybe regarding something like this as an example, or someone saying something derogatory and inflammatory about a sexual orientation class or religion or anything. And um, often as psychotherapists or even supervisees that we supervise, they're left to, they're la- left quite baffled. You know, do I bring this up? Is this my issue? Um, and of course we often discuss whether it could potentially um, rupture the therapeutic alliance. And yet it's also maintain uh, difficult to maintain a genuine therapeutic alliance when your client keeps on perpetrating microaggressions that impact you on a deep level. So this could be something that one might um, utilize in the psychotherapy context. Yeah. And I I train a lot of um, psychology doctoral students where this kind of thing arises. And it's always a very uh, complicated question of do I address it? And if so, how? So I appreciate that. And I really appreciate your examples just in terms of giving us some examples of the type of language and the type of tone that that could be effective because sometimes it's like, oh, that sounds good, but how do I do that? So those are yeah. so helpful. Thank <laughs> yeah. you. Yeah. And then you move into the next steps of your model, which are about listening and responding. And I think listening, it's even in your title, you know, you say it's time to talk and listen. Um, Listening is so crucial. And yet really, truly listening is a lot harder and more complicated than it sounds. Um, How do you help people work on listening deeply and meaningfully, Anastasia? Yeah, so how to listen deeply and meaningfully? Um, it's it's a lot. <laughs> it's also not easy. In the book, we take the reader through a list of do's and don'ts and for effective listening. And this particular step also includes honestly assessing your listening skills, um, very much in line with what Alicia talked about earlier, and identifying strengths and barriers and certainly areas for improvement. So some do's of effective listening include um, giving your full and divided attention, maintaining appropriate 
great eye contact, physically leaning into the conversational space, checking for things such as facial and body language, offering some affirmations that you are present and listening. And then, of course, minimizing distractions that can can interfere with your attention. And of course, all of these seem like super common sense, and they are. Um, But in the chapter on listening, we challenge our readers to consider and unpack the complexities and sometimes the contradictions of all the do's that I just mentioned, particularly against different cultural backdrops. So, for example, the right or the appropriate amount of eye contact is really culturally conditional. So how much eye contact with whom, for what reason, under what circumstances, all of these things really matter. And although no single person can be an expert in every culture, understanding the phenomenon of cultural expectations and expressions can definitely make a huge difference between a successful and a failed attempt at having a constructive conversations. Um, In this chapter, we also address the barriers inherent in listening, especially when challenging topics and strong emotions are involved. And this includes teaching the reader more advanced listening skills Um, including how to listen accurately, listening for the speaker's intentions, what to do when your listening is hijacked by rebuttals um, that compromise your attention, and finally how to spot um, and manage common pitfalls in listening. So we like to take a deep dive with the with the reader in, in terms of the complexities and the layers involved in listening. And as with other steps, uh, we offer the readers various activities and exercises so that they can start trying on and developing the concrete skills as they are reading. And Finally, reading is also more complicated than meets the eye. We break this step into four components. Um, Just like in the action step, all the components help to maximize relationship connection. Um, The content of what you say matters only to the extent that uh, you are in connection and in mutual respectful conversation with the other person. So the four components of the responding step includes appreciating the speaker, acknowledging what was said, sharing the impact and um, hope for the future. Um, So throughout all the steps, including the steps of deep listening and responding, we really encourage the readers to ground in their values. And um, maybe if I may, I wanted to go back to your example, um, Debbie, of uh, let's say let's say in this case, cousin John instead of coworker John. So you might say using the four um, elements of responding You might say, thank you, Cousin John, for hearing me out and for letting me know where you're coming from. That's appreciating John's willingness to engage with you. It sounds like from your perspective, John, I misunderstood your intentions and you feel that I took your joke too seriously. That would be you acknowledging what John said. I hear you, I believe you, and I still feel very disappointed because for me as a woman, my experience is very different. And I'm also frustrated because it feels like it's hard for you to see it from my point of view. And that's you, Debbie, sharing the impact of what John said. And even though we don't see eye to eye on this right now, I hope we can continue to talk about it because it's very important to me. And as my cousin and family, you're also important to me. And that would be the hope for future connections with John. Um, So we hope that that gives you a little bit of a flavor in terms of what the step of both listening and responding could look like. That's helpful. And I think with practice, you know, you emphasize the practice component. With practice, you can make it sound natural, make it sound more like your words, your personality, but to get those kind of basic 
responding and listening skills in. It's funny, in our field, it's listening sounds so easy, and yet we spend years (laughs) on being a good listener. And I've occasionally been accused by my husband of not listening, like when he's talking about work. It's it's something that I would encourage people to just continue practicing and working on, um, both listening and responding. Yeah. And then your final step is do it again and repeat. Like you said, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Um, you, you know, you also talk about moving into advocacy and and ways that people can go beyond into social justice. And I have to say, I think anyone who's listened to this episode this long really must care about this and and take the time to think about it. And I just encourage people to continue taking these courageous steps towards social social justice and you know, being willing to tackle these hard problems. I think your book will be really helpful for people who are struggling with this. And just this conversation, I really appreciate what you've what you've brought to us today. Thank you, Debbie. We really appreciate having an opportunity to have this conversation with you. And hopefully some of this will resonate with your listeners and subscribers. I think it will. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, Just one last quick question. Do you have any additional resources to point people toward? Um, And I can link to anything you recommend on the show notes for today. Is there anything in particular that people, besides your book, of course? Yeah. um, I mean, they could certainly go to our respective websites and they can, um, we both have personal websites as well as ones that are linked to our Wright Institute. Um, And in there are a number of resources, both for Alicia and I, including our past work um, and some of our publications. So that might be a resource. And then for any listener and subscriber who's interest, who are interested in contacting us um, for specific resources, we're happy to be in contact with them. And again, they could find our contact information in our, on our websites, both at the Wright Institute and um, our respective personal websites. Fabulous. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was really nice talking to you today. Thank, Thank you, Debbie. Debbie. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are having a mental health emergency, please dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. Our website is www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com.